The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Okay, now let's go to God's Word. The topic of the day is Revelation 18, so we're going to turn there. If you look at Revelation 18 in your Bible, you notice, how many verses? Whoa, 24 verses. So this is actually one of the longest chapters in Revelation how in the world is Pastor Cliff going to get through this one? Uh, good question. Uh, there's a lot here. Fortunately, it's in, written as a narrative, so we can. it's kind of like story form. So we can just walk through it. Uh, and again, because my goal is not to exhaust every sentence and phrase as we go through the narrative of a revelation, but one of my goals is to just point out significant things and significant highlights in each chapter that will help all of us study it in proper context moving forward. So this will help you hopefully in your future Bible study. How do we approach each chapter? How do we approach the book of Revelation? Because that's such a challenge. What is the proper hermeneutic and approach to Revelation? Great confusion out there. So one of my goals will just hopefully be a high-level picture from 30,000 feet, uh, and we'll walk through the chapter I broke it up into a few sections to help us to show how the theme develops. Uh, so I'll give you that in a second. But to set the big context for all of us by way of reminder, maybe you, there, we've got some visitors today or people uh, tuning in for the first time. The big context, so we're in the book of Revelation, uh, written by John the Apostle at the end of his life, probably around 95 AD. He is a prisoner for being a Christian and preaching about Jesus. He's been confined to a little island called the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea, probably doing hard labor. And Jesus Christ appeared to him and gave him a vision and through angels gave him all this revelation or information and then Jesus told him, write it down. And primarily what this was about was how the world was going to end. And primarily it's in chronological order, the way it's laid out in the book of Revelation. The immediate audience that Jesus had in mind that he was concerned about were the seven churches that were in Asia Minor where John was familiar. John had actually shepherded or been a pastor in some of those churches and John very well may have known all seven churches and ministered to those saints and most of those believers or churches were in, under duress from persecution for the faith. Some had already been murdered for their faith. John makes clear in chapter 2 and 3. So Jesus wants to give a word of encouragement immediately to the saints who are under duress or in persecution. But at the same time, uh, well, part of that encouragement is, you know what, this persecution that you're suffering, it's short term. It's, it's temporary or temporal because the good news is here's the long-term perspective. Here's how world history is going to end. It's going to be bad, but it's going to end good. And it ends with Jesus Christ coming to reign as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings. And also, and then we go into the eternal state to be with God forever. So that's one of the things that Jesus wants to do is encourage those persecuted saints of 2,000 years ago. But God uh, knows that his church will live on beyond the first century, and so he wanted to encourage all the saints of the ages for the, for the next 2,000 years, which would include us. So God knew that we needed this encouragement as well. We needed the big picture to be encouraged in our faith in 2000 or in 2021. We have persecuted Christians all over the world. There are many countries where they are physically persecuted, imprisoned, silenced, beaten, murdered. If you're not aware of that, then you need to get in touch with what's going on in the world with regard to your fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a mandate. That's a command from Hebrews 13. Believe or think and think about, pray for, minister to your fellow believers who are imprisoned. So that's a good reminder for us. Uh, so revelation is an encouragement to those believers and also to any of us who are experiencing a troubled heart, an anxious mind, persecution, suffering, 
maybe lack of hope. Lack of hope is always in reference to the future. If you have a lack of hope, that that means you're thinking about the future. And probably not from God's point of view, because he wants you to have hope if you're a Christian. So the book of Revelation is going to give us hope. Or it's intended to. It's intended to bless us and give us hope. Well, Pastor Cliff, how can you say that with these last chapters? We've been in the tribulation, right? Starting in chapter 6. Week after week after week. And it's some heavy stuff. It's real. It's future. It's yet to come. It's universal. And the characters involved from the demonically, satanically possessed Antichrist. And those characters called Earth Dwellers. People on the earth who hate Christ and believers. The false prophet who is going to arise. False religion that's going to arise like never before. To persecute believers. That is the future that's yet to come. It's guaranteed. So that's ominous. That's the portrait that John has been painting since chapter 6. But every once in a while there is good news in there. Here and there we're going to see a little bit more good news. But you're asking how can we have hope regarding the future with all of this bad news? Because Revelation 17 that I did last week, there was a lot of bad news there. So here's some good news. Um, if I were to ask virtually anyone, whether you're a Christian or not, the question, what are you, what's one of the things that you're most anxious about or concerned about? Many people would say, well, I'm most concerned or quite anxious about the future. That's true of just about everybody, because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. It doesn't even matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your politics are. It could be you're in that political camp that you're most, uh, you're, you are most anxious about the future with regard to the planet, and you believe that it is going to collapse or fall apart in 11 years or less if we don't do something about climate change. There are people who truly believe that. That's a real worry. That's a real concern. That's a real fear, and it drives much of what they do. And then there are other people who are concerned about the future for other reasons. There are those who are concerned about its moral collapse, and they see the de de degeneration, at least, of our country. Now it seems to be going exponentially out of control, and they're concerned about the future regarding morality. Uh, there are others who are practically concerned of the future, thinking the world's going to end in World War III through a nuclear holocaust. That's always been a long-standing fear of a lot of people. And on and on the list goes of fears that people have about the future. And then just what we've been studying, Revelation 17, 18, actually chapter 6 through 17, is about the future. And like I said, it is ominous. There will be an Antichrist. There will be universal worldwide dominant hatred of believers and followers of Christ. Believers will be slaughtered at a mass scale. And, and that can weigh our hearts down regarding the future. So one thing that we can be blessed by in Revelation today, chapter 18, is remember who is in charge of all this, who is in control. And there's been a little phrase, and I don't know if you've caught it, as we've been going through Revelation, particularly starting with the tribulation in Revelation 6, every once in a while, it says, he was given, he was given, he was given. And usually it's, he was given authority. He was given the ability to do something, whether it was an angel, whether it was the Antichrist, whether it was the ten evil, wicked kings who will rise in the future, whether it was the harlot from Babylon, whether it was earth dwellers who were given the authority to slaughter Christians. That little phrase, they were given... They were given this by who? The answer is they were given it by God. They have authority, and all of that authority is given by God. God, which reminds us that God is totally in control of everything, including the future. So, as I embark on Revelation 18, let me read this verse first. If you have your Bible handy, it's just two verses. It's in uh, Isaiah 46. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen. This is God talking. It's very comforting. It's a great reality. And here's what God says to his people. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. And God's talking to his people. And he calls them transgressors. Well, that, that's us. We need to hear this. Remember this. Don't forget this. Make this a priority. Have this dominate your thought life. Control your thoughts with this paramount truth that will dictate everything else. It will even control your emotions what it means. Remember this. Be assured. Don't forget it. Recall it to mind. Keep 
ruminating on it, meditating on it, over and over and over again, write it down. What is it? Well, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning. There it is. God determines the future. God creates the future. God guarantees the future. Everything happens according to God's plan. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning. God is totally in charge of the future. Christian, why are you worried about the future? Why don't you have hope about the future? Remember this, said God. Declared, he declares the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things which have not been done. And God says, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish my good pleasure. Boy, there's an encouraging word. God is totally in charge of the future. What will happen tonight, what will happen tomorrow, next week, next month, decades ahead, and the end times that we're seeing right now. So let's go ahead with that in mind, and let's go to Revelation 18 and see what God is going to do in the future. He is in charge. He's already declared it to be so. He's so specific in the details, too. He's giving us names and showing us who the main characters are and how the responses of the world will be. This is real future yet historical events that will come to pass. So in Revelation 18, uh, it goes with chapter 17 and 18 go together. By way of reminder, we are now at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The last three and a half years are very devastating. The last three and a half years, Jesus called the Great Tribulation. So it's really a three and a half year tribulation. And then God begins to pour out his judgments in a universal way upon the earth. And it reaches a climax with the seven bold judgments, which we, we already saw in chapter 16. The sixth bold judgment at the end of the age was that God was going to pour out his wrath on the Euphrates River over there in the Middle East, over by Iraq and Iran. It's a real river, it's always a real river in the Bible, and it still exists today, and so I take this literally in Revelation 16, 12. God is going to judge or make a judgment around the area of the Euphrates River. That is yet to come. And then the seventh bowl in chapter 16, 17, he poured out a bowl of wrath, and that judgment is upon Babylon the Great, verse 19, called the Great City, the Great City. God is going to judge Babylon, the great city, in the future. Babylon still exists today. It's a city over there by the Euphrates River. So in chapter 16, if you put verse 12 together, the Euphrates River, and then in verse 19, Babylon, the great city, some would ask, well, it says Babylon, the great city. It's in proximity with the Euphrates River. Pastor Cliff, uh, what river is that talking about? And what city is it talking about? Oh, you mean where it says Babylon, the great city by the Euphrates River? What city is that talking about? I, I'm confused. Because a lot of Christians will say, or Bible interpreters, well, that's talking about Rome. Rome, the city that's not by the Euphrates River. But it says right here by the Euphrates River, Babylon, the great city. So let's just take the Bible at face value like we do in John chapter 3 and Philippians 2 and Psalm 2 and interpret it that way. Again, it's called Babylon the Great, chapter 17, verse 5. It's called the Great City in chapter 17, verse 18. So now we move to chapter 18, and God is going to tell us about how the Great City in the future called Babylon is going to be judged by God. And he says in chapter 18, three times he calls it Babylon. Babylon, Babylon the Great, Babylon the Great. And then six times in Revelation 18, he calls it a city, the great city, a city, a city, a city, the great city. Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. Pastor Cliff, what do you think Babylon, the great city is in Revelation 18? Take a guess. It's a city, and it's Babylon. And two times in Revelation, chapter 9, chapter 16, God referred to the Euphrates River. Even in chapter 17, he talked about the many waters, the many waters. That refers to the Euphrates River that exists today, that has people all over the place, it's over a thousand miles long, and you have ships to this day even doing their business and floating on the Euphrates River. So that's our approach. We're going to just take it literally at face value. Some people will call me naive and silly and unscholarly for doing that. That is okay. 
This is how God wants his people to understand his word. There's no reason to change your hermeneutic just because you're in the book of Revelation. So here it is. Chapter 18, big picture, is that God is showing John the Apostle through an angel of how this important city called Babylon of the future is going to be judged by God. And it's going to be judged quickly and in a moment of time at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's the big picture. And God is going to raise up the city of Babylon to be actually the most important city in the world, the richest city in the world, the most thriving. It's really going to be the epicenter of all human activity in the future. It's not now, but it will be in the future. It was historically at one time, and it will be raised again to that level, that stature in the future. It's guaranteed. That's what the Bible says. And people will say, no, that's not true. As they look around the world today, that's the mistake they make. No, it's New York City, or it's Paris, or whatever city. It can't be Babylon. No, yeah, it can. Times change. Times change radically as time goes on. That's how history works, if you're a student of history. And God guarantees. So Babylon over by Iraq, by the Euphrates River, is going to be the most important city on planet Earth in the future. And there's going to be three significant ways it's going to be the most important city in the way it's going to rise to prominence. It is going to be the headquarters. That city is going to be the headquarters of a one world religion. That was the theme of Revelation 17 that we saw last week. There will be a one world religion. And one of its goals is to snuff out those who follow Christ. So a one world religion will rise. Uh, it will be its common theme. It will have a common theme of all the false religions of the world today. So not much needs to change because there's only two religions in the world. It's the re revealed re religion of God, which is truth, of worshiping him and giving him all the glory. And then it's by grace through faith apart from human works, totally initiated by him. That's true religion. And then false religion is just man-made, works righteousness doing my own thing, trying to do good works to achieve some forgiveness of sin or earn the favor of the gods. That's never changed. It's always the same. So that will be the nature of the worldwide religion. It appeals to everybody, too, who's not a Christian. It's, it's merit-based, and everybody loves themselves. So that's a good religion that they can buy into. Some of the other features of it, according to Romans chapter 1, is that God tells us in Romans 1 that False religion is characterized as it reaches rock bottom by creature worship. Literally, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Worship, esteeming the creation above and beyond what God deserves in terms of the glory. Giving loyalty to that which is created. Giving loyalty, homage, and honor to the environment. So probably the one world religion at the end of the age may have some environmentalism to it, and virtually every kingdom around the world today, that appeals to them, and they have an environmental agenda. And many people, because they don't have a true religion or faith in God or they don't know Christ, environmentalism is their religion. So these may be wed together. It's very possible. So chapter 17 was a one-world religion, and then John was told that this one-world religion that will arise and thrive in the city of Babylon, Babylon a literal city where false religion emanates from, but Babylon is also a system. So Babylon, a false religion, is a city and a system. And the one-world religion collapses because of God's judgment in chapter 17. So that's... Uh, the judgment of false religion emanating from Babylon. Now we go to chapter 18, and now Babylon, the city that's going to be raised up by God to be the prominent city in the world in terms of religion, it will also be the most prominent city in the future in the world regarding economics. It will be the economic hub of planet Earth. Where is that today? I don't know. You can't just say America because you have some of the richest people in the world living in other countries, even including Mexico and France and whatever. So. And that's why all these very rich, filthy rich people today, most of them, they want a one-world global economy. Global economy. So that's where we're headed. Fifty years ago, there was no such thing as a global economy. Most nations were independent. 
Their economy didn't affect other economies. Fast forward 50 years to 2021, that is not true. What happens on one side of the world directly affects us here on this side of the world. We have a one world economy and, we're, and that's going to be solidified moving forward. That is total, and you can just see that blatantly here in chapter 18. And so what happens here in chapter 18 is that God, after judging the one world religion, after that he will judge the one world economy and it will be completely decimated and it will happen in a moment of time. It happens quickly. And we'll, we'll see the details of that as we read through. So, and also the political system. So let's go ahead and look at it. God's judgment on the future city of Babylon that is the center of economic power and the commercial system that is prominent in the world. Here are the five categories I've broken down to. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 3 is the declaration where God just simply gives a decree. And he says in verse 2, Babylon the great, or fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's a decree from God. It's guaranteed. It's already been decreed by God. It will happen. So that's God's declaration that Babylon, the greatest city in the world in the future, is going down. After the declaration is the dissipation, I call it, verses 4 through 8. Dissipation is a long and fancy word for sin, for decadence, for excess, and all that that entails, from drunkenness to wanton luxury and profligate living, to sexual perversion and all that is involved, dissipation. So after the declaration, you have the dissipation. And the dissipation is the reason, verse 8, God, why is God judging this city? Well, he says in verse 8, well, for this reason, literally, for this reason. God is going to judge this city and, in effect, judge the world because of its dissipation. Well, what were their sins? Verse 7, this city and all who lived in it glorified herself. That's pride to the nth degree. We're never going to see pride like this. And also sensuality. They lived sensuously. That's materialism on steroids. Luxurious living, self-centered living. Another reason at the end of the chapter is because they persecute the saints and slaughter believers. So that's their dissipation. So there's the declaration, the dissipation, and then after that, is the participation. Well, who are the guilty parties involved that are being judged along with this city and the inhabitants of this city? And we'll see who those participants, the main characters are in verses 9 all the way to verse 19, the participants. Then verse 20 is I call jubilation. There's a brief pause and a celebration in heaven at the demise of God's judgment on the future Babylon center of the world, verse 20. And then it concludes 21 to 24 with the illustration. God gives a vivid illustration to display what this prophecy is going to be like when it's fulfilled through a, an actual an action that this angel does by way of illustrating how it will happen so quickly in a devastating matter. It's unstoppable. It's guaranteed. So let's go ahead and just walk through these five or so categories that we have. First, let's look at the declaration as, again, John continues to explain how Babylon, this future city, is going to be judged by God. The one world religion that has its headquarters in this future Babylon, whether it's a temple of some sort, headed by a team of people and a committee and an allegiance and a holy book, who knows what it's going to look like, but the headquarters will be in Babylon. God will judge that. And the way that God judges the false religion in the future and gets rid of it is he utilizes the ten kings. He, he raises up these ten kings. The ten kings, rulers of the world, they're okay with this religion because they're using religion to get what they want. Oh, wow, if I participate in this uh, religious uh, event and commitment, then they're just looking at all the return that they get. They get power, they get authority, they get money, they get privilege, they get uh, influence, control of people. So that religion serves them well. False religion serves people well, accomplishes a purpose. And that will be true of the Antichrist as well. He's going to have this false religion. We saw that. But at some point, the Antichrist is going to consolidate power to a point where he doesn't need this false religion anymore. And he destroys it. And that's the theme of chapter 17. The ten kings of the earth and the Antichrist. So they outlaw religion, like Hitler said, did. I mentioned that last week. No more of this religion. Here's a new religion. You worship me. 
Here's my idol. It's in the temple. Here's the mark. You don't worship me. You die. So false religion actually is destroyed by the Antichrist. Now, well, who's going to destroy the economy? Let's look at it. It's actually, again, God. And here, here's his decree. After these things, after this vision of the one world religion rising and getting destroyed by the Antichrist, he has another immediate vision about judgment on the worldwide economy headquartered in Babylon. After these things, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. So he's, he has authority from God, so it's going to be accomplished. It can't be thwarted. He can't be outsmarted. He can't be outdone. Human ingenuity, human technology can't thwart God's plan. It's already been decreed. He has the authority of heaven itself. He needs, and this, and the earth was illumined with his glory. So he'll be seen by everywhere. In other words, you know what? He can't be ignored. I just thought about that, meditating on that this week. How much of Christianity and its influence around the world is just categorically, completely ignored? Where it's making great inroads and a great influence and a great blessing and doing great things. You don't ever read about it. You never hear about it. Who cares? Who cares what the church is doing? Who cares what these very influential godly leaders around the world are doing? They are completely ignored. That's deliberate. It's not, it can't happen in the future. They won't get away with it this time. Uh, verse 2. This amazing, powerful, brilliant angel on behalf of God cried out with a mighty voice. Everyone will hear it. And here's what he says. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It is a decree from God. It has been determined. Babylon, your greatest city, it's going down. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every clean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. So he's giving the big picture. God decreed that the greatest city in the world is going to be judged by God. It's going to happen quickly. Part of that judgment on it is going to be God using demons and many of them to destroy that city. Many demons will be used to raise that city to prominence. Many of the leaders thriving in that city will be demon-possessed, and those demons will turn on itself, because that's what demons do. And so he gives the big picture of its desolation, so that it's the most brilliant, amazing, successful, luxurious, beautiful city in the history of the world, bar none, and at the end of the chapter it says, you look from a distance, and it's just smoke is rising, and it's burning in flames. That's its destiny. And that's what God is going to do to it. And it will be completely desolate, completely uninhabitable. Can't live there. The only thing that lives there are demons and scavengers of animals. It goes from being the most productive city in the world to completely desolate. Who's involved here? Verse 3 says, for all the nations. God, why are you judging this? city because all the nations I believe all the nations means all the nations well that's why this is universal this didn't happen historically locally in Jerusalem or locally in Babylon or regionally just in the Middle East in the past this is yet future and it is universal and all the nations means all the nations right now we have 193 ish nations in the world they will all be involved either before they consolidate with one another or after Everyone's going to be turning attention to there. And it's already happening. You can see it. We're, we're getting set up for that because so many people are thinking globally. Even here in the powerful America, some of our most influential people in the elites, they're not just thinking America. They've got their eyes set on greater sites. Other countries in the world who have resources and money and wealth and power and influence and a future. And that's what's going to happen. All the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, Babylon's immorality. Immorality, again, first and foremost, referring to false religion and compromise and blasphemy against God the Creator. Idolatry. All the nations, all the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. So all the world leaders are going to join in this consortium of compromise. So the kings of the earth, the leaders of the world, that's what that means. That's not the ten kings of chapter 17, by the way. This, the kings of the earth is just generic, all the leaders of the world at that time, however many there are. And not only the kings of the earth, but the merchants of the earth. 
The merchants of the earth are one of the main characters in this chapter. The merchants of the earth in my English Bible. Who are the merchants of the earth? Literally, it means those who go and make money. They go with a purpose to make money. These are the businessmen of the world or the businesswomen of the world. Literally, the merchants. They get the most information uh, in this chapter is by way of characters. And we'll see them in just a second. So the merchants of the earth, uh, they're businessmen, they're uh, business magnates, they do one thing, they make money. And they're, uh, they form an oligarchy. What's an oligarchy? That's uh, prominent, successful, very rich businessmen who also wield incredible political power together at an elitist level. They're going to run the world. So what comes to your mind when I talk about, by the way, these merchants? Look at verse 23. It says, these merchants are the great men of the earth. You know why they're great? Because they have so much money. They have so much wealth. And why are they great? With their money and wealth? Because they control everything. Does that ring a bell? Does that sound familiar? So you might be thinking, the merchants of the earth, these great men who control the world and have all this influence in the arising future city, you might be thinking, oh, I know who that is. Just go to Google and list the top 10 richest people in the world. Well, uh, if you do that, you, you, you can't voice them into scripture here for a couple of reasons, these merchants. Um, one reason is, is that these merchants that have all this power through amassed wealth so that they dominate the world, the, just a few people dominate the world because of their excessive wealth and the power that comes with that and the pride and their, their identity and their, they want control. Well, it says specifically they partner with influential people in Babylon in the Middle East and they do business. And verse 15 says the merchants of these things became rich with doing business with Babylon. Became rich. Verse 23 says the same thing. They became rich. Verse 3 says they became rich. So they're not rich now. They will become rich in the future through this enterprise by, work, by doing business dealings with this city that will arise in the future called Babylon. That's why you can't say, well, it's Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and the French guy from Tiffany's, Bernard Arnault, who's number three or four in the world. Can't do that because they aren't rich now. They become rich in the future through this future city, which is interesting to think about because how in the world can these richest people in the world right now who have up to $200 billion worth of wealth, how can they be displaced? How is that even possible? Well, they will be. They will either be displaced deliberately or they will just simply be bypassed through new dealings, a new enterprise, a new way to make money, new headquarters. You're out. Sorry. The mafia can do it. These guys in the future can do it. They'll do business. Another reason I don't think you can look at the top richest people in the world today, because if you look at the short list of the richest people in the world today, most of them, the majority of them are from America. They're Americans. And you don't see the USA in America in future prophecy. Things don't culminate around the United States. The United States is not a major player. It's not the epicenter. And also, the way they make their money, verses 11 through 15, it lists 28 luxury goods that constitute business ventures of how they amassed their wealth. And out of those 28 goods or items or enterprises, the United States leads in one of those 28 areas. The, the United States is superfluous with respect to the future in amassing this wealth. If you look at the items, the luxury items listed in verse 11 through 15, there's 28 items, which constitute seven categories. From, it starts out with gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk. You know, that's all valuable today. This was written 2,000 years ago. All of this stuff is very specific and is still of the highest value. It's what people want all around the world. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, linen, purple, uh, silk, scarlet, valuable wood, every article of ivory, very costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. That's what precious furniture is made of even today. 
cinnamon and spice. Cinnamon is the most uh, valued spice in the world, even to this day. Cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine. Who doesn't like wine? Olive oil, fine flour, wheat. You would think that the United States even would lead the world in flour and wheat. They don't. Cattle, sheep. You would think the world, maybe the United States leads in cattle. It doesn't. Not even close. Horses, chariots. Chariot, the word chariot there in verse 13. Don't think Ben-Hur with the two-wheel chariot. Don't think uh, the gladiator with the two-wheel chariots. Because that's not, it's literally a four-wheeled carriage. A four-wheeled machine that carries people. Could be a chariot with four wheels, could be a car. But chariot doesn't mean two wheels. And, and, another, and the most valuable commodity of all that brings the most profit the quickest is the last one mentioned in verse 13, and that's slaves, human lives. So slavery will be alive and well in the future, and people will be profiting and making money. They're still, we have a slave trade today. We have nations involved in slavery today. By the way, well, who leads the world in all these commodities and these enterprises amassing all this wealth today, just if we did today? Well, it's in the Middle East. It's over by Europe and the Middle East. Today, you can track it. Historically, it's always been true. Today, it is true. Maybe in the future, it will probably be true because these resources are there. China leads the way in this list of 28, by far, not even close. China and India and Russia. And you look that triangle on a map and, whoa, that's the Middle East. That's right next to Iraq. Very practical. Just doing practical analysis here. So that's the declaration. Babylon, the world city, is going down. Well, for what? For its dissipation, which I've already alluded to. Let's look at four through eight. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So here's God always seeking to save sinners, to be rescued, flee. It's the grace of God. Come out of her. This is during the tribulation, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. So you won't be subjected to these judgments. God doesn't want his people subjected to these judgments that are coming in the future. And God will judge, he says in verse 5, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. But that phraseology, her sins have piled up, literally have been, her sins have been stacked up like bricks to heaven. You know, that's the imagery of Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. It's exactly what they were trying to do. They were not successful in Genesis 11, they will be almost successful here in the future in Babylon. So their sins are just going to stack up to God so that he smells their sin and he must deal with it. Verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid. Give back double according to her deeds. Give back in kind according to her deeds. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's what that means. doesn't mean twice the amount. It means give back the equivalent of. And that's the biblical mosaic uh, law of lex talius or uh, talionis in, in Latin, but it's uh, retaliation, the law of retaliation. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's a biblical principle, and that's what God is going to do. As you have committed sin, you also shall be punished accordingly. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 7. Galatians says it, Paul in Galatians 6. You sow, you reap. In the cup which has Mixed, mixed twice as much for her to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. So that was, that's the main sin of these people in the future. They will glorify themselves because their identity is in what they have amassed in terms of their luxury, their profligate wealth, their, and the way they live. And they oppress others as a result of it. And they give no glory to God whatsoever. And that's the greatest sin of all because the Bible is clear that God is the one who gives the power to make wealth. That's what the book of Deuteronomy says. God is the one who gives the power to make wealth. James says that every gift you have is from above. Every one. Paul says in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive from God? When we fail to recognize that, that's pride, self-sufficiency, self-glorification, the greatest sin, the greatest offense. God can't stand it. It is a stench to his nostrils. And he judges it. That was Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He goes out on his balcony in his palace and he looks around at Mike and he says, His kingdom, the great, this is Babylon the great, a city that I have built for my glory. When he said that, God came down and wiped him out or humbled him on the spot. 
because he glorified himself, didn't give glory to God. Acts chapter 12, New Testament, Herod Agrippa rose to power during the days of the apostles. He starts killing apostles. He has joy in doing it. He's a petty tyrant, and he is completely self-centered, and he throws a citywide regional party for himself, glorifying himself and calling all people to worship him. God literally killed him on the spot. He fell over dead and his innards spilled out with, with worms. Why? Because he gave all the glory to himself and not to God. And God can't stand it and he's going to judge it. It will not be tolerated. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So that's their dissipation. That's their sin. They glorified themselves, lived sensuously, in wanton pleasure with luxury to the same degree give her torment and mourning for she says in her heart I sit as a queen I am not a widow meaning I am totally self-sufficient that's what these merchants believe that's what uh, all these people who make all this money they're completely self-sufficient they think they have no weaknesses they're not going to die they're going to live forever I sit as a queen I have it all I reign supreme. We have some of that attitude going on in the world today. It's inherent in humanity. Verse 8, for this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine. In one day, that means immediately, quickly, suddenly and completely. That's the idea and the illustration of a bowl of judgment being poured out. The sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. End of the tribulation, boom, short period of time, done. So it's not a process gradually happening. Complete, utter def devastation like an earthquake does. Complete and utter instantaneous unexpected devastation. And it's going to come. And there will be pestilence, mourning, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God judges her is strong. God is in control. This is how the world's going to end people. So after the declaration, the dissipation, let's look at the participation, much of which I've already covered. But who, who's involved here? Well, three main parties. You've got uh, those who run and rule the city of Babylon in the future. No doubt you have the Antichrist who is in a prominent position as well. In addition to the, the Antichrist, you have his false prophet who is his right-hand man. We know that they're ready and influential to take over. But you also have the kings of the earth, verse 9. These are the rulers of the world. They all come together. Yeah, we agree. We're moving the United Nations from New York City to Babylon. And it's now become the World Health Center of the world and everything else, and the headquarters economically of the world. So this is the kings of the earth. They are the participants as well. The rulers who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over the city when it burns and is judged by God and when they see the smoke of her burning. They, verse 10, they stand at a distance. What does that mean? They're cowards. They don't want to be involved. They're wise. They know just at the right time to get away, to get out of the city, pretend like they're not involved. They're standing at a distance because they don't want to be judged along with it. So they're standing at a distance, and because of the fear of her torment, saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. The only reason they're saying, whoa, whoa, and weeping is because they're losing all their profit. There's all my profits burning up. I've just lost all my assets. For in one hour, your judgment has come. So the participants are the kings of the earth, but also the participants are the merchants of the earth. I, I mentioned this already earlier. Those, the wealthiest people of the world who have all that influence because of their money. They also, along with the kings of the earth, they weep and mourn as they see the city of Babylon burning to the ground. And the, the reason they're weeping is because no one buys their cargoes anymore. They're not making money anymore. And there's the list of the 28 cargoes that are mentioned, beginning with gold, culminating with, at the end of verse 13, slavery, human lives. The most graphic, despicable examples and manifestations of the sinfulness of humanity, I think, is human slavery and abortion. Because it's a complete disregard for the sanctity of human life. Every single human being being made in the image of God and is therefore precious and sacred. Every soul is mine. That's what God said in Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Every soul is mine, his possession. That's how corrupt and horrible this world will become. Sin 
abounds today, it's just going to escalate and reach a pinnacle in the future. And this is the evidence of it. Verse 14, the fruit of you long, the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things, the businessmen, the magnates of the world, the few, the elite, the powerful, the rich, they became rich from the business that was going on in this new future city and all this wealth. These merchants like the kings, they're not going to be going in and trying to rescue people like people courageously did at 9-11, going in to burn buildings that were falling down, giving their life to save people because life is precious. No, they'll stand at a distance. They also are cowards. They're weeping over their losses, not at the devastation of human life. They stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment. They have fear because they know they're guilty. They're culpable. They could be next, and they are actually. Because those who don't get wiped out and judged at this time, that are culpable, that are guilty, they do get judged in Revelation 19. No one escapes the wrath of the Lamb when he comes, the Lord Jesus Christ with his rod of iron. We'll see that next week. But the merchants say, Woe, woe, the great city, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, there it is again, this is repeated three times in one hour. That just means suddenly, instantly. In one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. So who are the participants? Well, the kings of the earth, the leaders of the world, the merchants of the world, the richest men in the world, richest women, they are the great men of the earth. And then the third category of participants, verse 17, says, and every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor. Well, that's strange. That's odd. And those who make their living by the sea. Why is that? Well, because Babylon is on the Euphrates River and is going to use the Euphrates River and its accesses to the seas to its potential like never before. It will be strategic. And it will benefit as a result. And money is to be made through this process. So the shipmasters, that's those who are in charge, literally the pilots of the ships, the sea captains, the helmsmen, they're known as, they're affected by this. Every passenger on those ships, every sailor, those who make their living by the sea, fishermen, divers, pearls, they're going after and everything else, they stood at a distance. So they also stand at a distance. They're cowards as they see the city go up in smoke, weeping and wailing because, again, they're losing their business, they're losing their profits. The city, it burns. <laughs> what city is like the great city, they cry. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads. And we're crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich. There it is. They became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. So these wealthy people that run the world with the politicians. So who's going to run the world in the future? It's going to be a one-world entity, a one-world government, one-world religion, a one-world economy, a one-world commerce one world political system and a few people will be running it by way of their influence. By the way, if you look at well, what kind of economy is it going to be? Some people say that they grieve because as they look at the future the world's going to be overrun and taken over by socialism and communism. This is not a picture of socialism and communism. You know what this is? This is a picture of capitalism. But it's corrupted capitalism, perverted capitalism, distorted Capitalism. If you look at the list of the ten richest men in the world, they're capitalists. Capitalism is not evil. Capitalism is completely neutral. It's a good thing, actually. And sinners can pervert good things. That's true of everything. Marriage is a good thing intended by God, but that can be distorted and abused by an abusive husband, etc., etc. So capitalism is not bad. People are bad. So don't get that confused. But just as I look at the way the system is going to happen, uh, these are just gross, unbelievably luxurious profits. And the business that they're doing in verses 11 and 14 speaks of capitalism or abused, manipulated. 
for the few. So people are evil, not necessarily the economic system. And by the way, when people say that, well, yeah, capitalism is inherently evil and greedy. You're greedy if you're a capitalist. You think, uh, some people are, not everybody is. And the implication is, if you're a socialist, you're not greedy. And I'm like, not wrong answer. Socialists and communists are just as greedy. They're just, they look different. They're the tyrants and the dictators in control with their 82 palaces. That's greed. Their system is socialism. Look at Venezuela. The leader that got them into the, that mess, he's greedy. Like no other. So it's just kind of interesting how this economic economic system will run in the future. So there's your three participants. The kings of the earth are rulers of the world who partner with Babylon, the merchants, these businessmen of the world, and then these shipmasters who run that industry over in Babylon in the future. Then next after that is the jubilation. So this is horrible devastation. You've got three categories of people who are weeping, wailing, mourning, whoa, whoa. Not everybody's weeping and wailing. There's rejoicing going on in heaven because of this. This judgment is deserved. Sin should be punished. That's cause for celebration, rejoicing, jubilation, and worship of God. That's the point of verse 20. There's a command from heaven that says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints, holy ones, and apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Here's your revenge. You don't do your revenge. You don't pursue your own revenge as a follower of Christ. God does it for you. When it's appropriate, to the appropriate degree, it's perfect every time. Romans 12, vengeance is mine. By the way, after he says, oh, be at peace with everybody insofar as you can. Don't, don't retaliate. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. And I remember everything. And I won't miss anything. And everyone will get due justice. And that's what's happening here. And this is cause for celebration. This is not celebration of saints on the earth. This is they're having a party in heaven. They're looking down. They see this. God revealed this to them. Revelation 6 is being fulfilled where the saints, the martyrs were praying, God, how much longer must we who have been slaughtered endure? God says, hold on a little bit longer. Hold on a little bit longer. Here it is. Rejoicing. Can we celebrate over the judgment of God and his wrath on people and killing them? Yes. In the appropriate context here, it's those who are glorified. They are perfect. They have perfect motives. They're up in heaven. They can't sin. So their worship and jubilation is completely legitimate, and it's actually a soothing aroma to God because he deserves the glory, not just as the creator and savior, but also as the righteous judge. That's our God. And then it concludes with 21 to 24, and that's, this is the illustration. Well, how is this all going to happen? And prophets did this all the time. They would act out a prophecy. Like Isaiah acted out a prophecy for, I don't know, more than a year of wearing almost nothing, going around almost naked to draw attention because he was commanded by God to do so. Jeremiah went out in the mud and started making bricks and waging war in his mud pile. And the neighbors thought he was, cuckoo. Jeremiah, what are you doing? God commanded him to do that. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all did that. So here's the illustration, verse 21. Then a strong angel, this is a separate angel, took a, a stone like a great millstone. By the way, the specific word regarding this millstone, this thing is about five to six feet in diameter, thousands of pounds. Uh, a, burst of, a beast of burden is the only thing that could actually move that thing. So that's the illustration, a huge, massive stone that no human being could lift in an ordinary way. So this imagery of a great stone. This strong angel has this huge massive stone and he throws it into the sea. How does that go? Well, because of the force of gravity. It goes immediately. It goes quickly. It goes exactly where it was directed. It happens instantaneously. There's no stopping it. That's the illustration of the judgment from God that is coming upon the world. It's going to be devastating. It's guaranteed. And it'll happen in a moment. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Verse 22, and the sound of the, and everything else, other than uh, the economic system and the commercial system, also just social life in general and normal living will be completely wiped out. That's verse 22 and following. And the sound of harpists, 
and musicians and flute players. What are harpists and flute players? Really, those who play the stringed instruments and those who play wind instruments, which that's a huge category of instruments. And anything else in between is under musicians, musicians who play all kinds of instruments, all music. Is music prominent in the world today? Yeah, it's one of the leading industries in the world today. Where in the world? Everywhere in the world. And music always has been. It's almost a cult. We follow our, we're, we follow our cult leaders, our, our music stars. So music will thrive. The music industry will thrive like they do today. Musicians will be political like they are today. Musicians, famous musicians will be political, pontificating and waxing eloquent about things they don't know about. They never graduated from high school, but they're experts on climate change. How'd you do that? Stick to music. Stick to that guy. I love that book that was written. It was called Shut Up and Sing. And it's just about musicians who usurp this role in our world. That will not change. That'll be true in the future, and they're going to be shut down by God. That's, all, that's the point in verse 22. The sound of harpists, musicians, flute players, and trumpeters will not be heard in this city anymore. When you see a big city, what do you hear? Ah, oh, the nightclub and the music, and you see the bright lights. And even when you were driving into Las Vegas from a distance, you could see miles away. It's just one big light at night. There's all the action going on, and the music, and the partying, and people engaging in social life. That's all shut down. That's the picture here. Music will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman or any craft will be found in you. You're not doing business anymore. The sound of the mill, it's completely silent, desolate. Nothing will be heard in you. No more production, no more conversation, no more social life. Verse 23, and the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. You fly over a helicopter at night, it's dark. Blackout. No life. That's what that means. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. That's social life. No marriages, no weddings, no celebration, no intercourse. Socially, for your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Sorcery, pharmakeia, pharmacy, drugs. But also in the New Testament referring to false religion, the occult, black magic. How is the Antichrist and these bureaucrats in the future, and these magic, how are they going to accomplish all this stuff at such a grand scale worldwide? Pharmakeia is going to be... Part of it, that's false religion, sorcery, it's demonic, and also could be drugs. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood, see this is the greatest sin of all, next to blasphemy of God, and in her, that city that was judged, was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Boy, that's a mouthful. But hopefully just that general breakdown will help you in your further study of this as you think about the... It's interesting, I think. You read the details here and then you're just, wow, okay, God, the tra trajectory of human history, how it's going, who are the players, are things set in place now? You've got to be careful doing that. But at the same time, you see God, his invisible hand, he is in charge of history. He declares the end at the very beginning. And so, as a believer, you can be comforted with that great truth. The Lord Jesus Christ, he, he reigns supreme, Lord of lords, King of kings. He's our Savior. He holds us in the palm of his hand. He holds the world in the palm of his hand. Therein lies our stability. Therein lies our joy in the midst of uncertainty. That's the promise to a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that promise. If you're not a Christian, you have great anxiety that can't be relieved. I understand. That's God's Spirit convicting you, prompting you. Go to him. Confess your sin to him. Bow the knee to him. Cry out to him. He's the only Lord. You're not the Lord of yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't control anything. You are doomed if you reject him. That's the theme we keep hearing in Revelation. In the Lord Jesus Christ, anybody that comes to him, confesses him as Lord and Savior, believing that he died in their place as a substitute, and he absorbed the wrath of a holy God in their place, and that he rose again from the dead to secure eternal life, for you as a sinner? Do you believe that about Jesus and cry out to him and just say, Lord, save me. Save me. I believe in you. I believe you're the Lord. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose for me. And I believe that you and only you are the one that can save me and lead me to the Father in heaven. God will answer that prayer. He'll answer it instantaneously and he will change your life. That is the good news. Let's pray to the Father. Father, we thank you for our time together. Again, just the privilege to... 
study your word together. Thank you for helping us and giving us the resources to understand a complex book like the book of Revelation. Forgive us, Lord, for neglecting it. And, and thank you that we can have a fresh look at it. God, encourage our hearts with your Holy Spirit, reminding us that you are on the throne. You are totally in control. Nothing happens as a mistake. Nothing happens that you didn't already decree and ordain. Everything's happening in accordance with your purposes, and, and you deserve all the glory for that. We thank you, and we commit all this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.